This is the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Now, this week's show is split into two quite distinctive parts based on two quite distinctive conversations that I had with this week's guests. Now, we all know that the big story this week is the upcoming by-elections in Copeland and Stoke on Thursday. Many are speculating that Labour could lose one, if not both, of what are supposed to be safe Labour seats. I'll be focusing specifically on Stoke later with Phil Burton Cartledge. Now, Phil is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby, but also a committed Labour activist and blogger. He's been pounding the pavements and knocking on doors in Stoke, and I wanted to understand, based on his experience, how confident he was that Labour would hold the seat, but also how Labour dealt more generally with this feeling of being left behind and abandoned that some of its voters seem to have. How can Labour re-engage with its working-class roots and see off the challenge from UKIP? Is that even possible? These were some of the uh, topics that we discussed uh, earlier this week. But first I wanted to revisit a topic that is very different, um, based on a poll that we conducted through Opinion a couple of weeks ago. Regular listeners will know that we recently conducted a poll looking at the Prime Ministers of the past 30 years, and whether the public thought they had done a good or bad job in office. Now those of you who saw the uh, visuals and images online and also listened to the podcast will know that Margaret Thatcher came out on top, and I wanted to find out why. Therefore, I was delighted to be joined by Conservative journalist Charles Moore. Now, Charles is the former editor of The Telegraph, Sunday Telegraph and Spectator, and is still a columnist for both The Telegraph and The Spectator too today. But he's also the authorised biographer of Lady Margaret Thatcher. So who better to speak to about her legacy and how she compares to her successors than Charles? So the first of our two conversations you're going to hear today is my conversation with Charles. And we covered a range of topics why does Margaret Thatcher's legacy compare so favourably to, uh, to her successors? How does she compare to Theresa May? Are there similarities and differences there? But we also, given that Charles is a journalist, talked a bit about the media, um, how they covered Thatcher, how they're covering May and Donald Trump, and what he makes of this so-called fake news phenomenon. So I'm here with uh, Charles Moore. Charles, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. So uh, you may have seen this poll that we had out a couple of weeks ago, which looked at the prime ministers of the last 30 years. And the, the standout finding was that Margaret Thatcher was seen as doing a good job by 40 percent of the public. Um, David Cameron was 14 percentage points back in second place. So uh, Margaret Thatcher very much leading the field, at least in terms of prime ministers of the last 30 years. I mean, does, her, does the fact that her legacy seems to be ageing well um, surprise you at all? Uh it doesn't surprise me because though she was never overwhelmingly popular with everybody because she was so controversial, it, she, was, she won three times and she never lost. And the reason for that was that people could understand a very clear sense of direction and purpose. Um, and that was, was true, essentially. And that tends to last because if you know what you're doing, you tend to do it. Sure. And she, um, she still, I guess, is divisive. I'm looking at some of these numbers Good, good job, 40%, bad job, 35%. So I suppose she maintains her critics as well. Uh, yes. Um, I think over time the critics um, have come more to acknowledge that she achieved a lot, but often they don't like what she achieved. So um, uh, there's a, what you might call a sort of grudging admiration for her um, uh, on the left. I mean, if one of the obvious comparisons that people will make is, is to the current Prime Minister, of course, uh, Theresa May. I mean, do you see, other than them being uh, conservative female Prime Ministers, do you, do you see similarities there? Yes, I do see some. <clears throat> I think they're both very serious, hard-working people, and they're both people who had to do it essentially by themselves. Their rise to the top was lonely in both cases. Um, 
and they have a certain irritation with or disdain for the sort of club of the usual type of Tory men. However, there's a very important difference, which is that Mrs Thatcher became leader in a contested election, and she was four years leader of the opposition, and then she won a contested general election in order to become prime minister. And so she had a long apprenticeship, and she had to fight her way through all these battles and work out what she believed before she could implement it. And Mrs May, through no fault of her own, has not had that. So she hasn't had a contested election for the leadership of her party or of the country, and yet she is leader of both. So it's a very different type of situation, and therefore she has to do an incredible amount of catching up in a very short time, Mrs May, in order to sort of work out what that direction is, which she didn't have to have before and she had to find. Sure, and I suppose the other, that they um, were prime ministers in very different times when we think of the media, and you, obviously, of course, being a journalist. Um, Theresa May has to deal with that 24-hour news cycle and, and social media as well. I mean, do you think that creates different problems and challenges? Yes, yes, I do. I mean, Mrs Thatcher was incredibly famous and sought after by the media, but it was a very different world. So, for example, when she became prime minister... Uh, in 1979, I think, I can't remember the exact figure, but she gave something like three into three or four newspaper interviews in her first sort of six months in office. Um, you know, really not much at all. And there certainly wasn't the 24-hour business. Um, and it wasn't expected that she'd be popping up on television uh, at every hour of the day. And there were only four channels, three, only three channels in 1979 on the whole of uh, British television, no satellites um, and obviously no internet. So... Um, she very much focused it first and foremost on uh, Parliament, um, and she didn't uh, spend a great time worrying about the media. She knew that the media mattered all right, and she planned that carefully, but she essentially got on with life. Mm. I guess one of, uh, if, we, if we sort of fast forward to the issue of the day, which is Brexit, um, many people will like to speculate as to what uh, Lady Thatcher would have thought of the vote to leave. She was obviously a strident Eurosceptic. Well, I say obviously, you may disagree, but she very much came across that way. Um, wh- what do you think she would have made of a leave vote? Would she have gone that far? Yes, well, well Karen, I always refuse to say what she would have done because, you know, my, my selling point is uh, <laughs> knowing what she did do and nobody can know what she would have done or said. But what I can say is that she... Um, moved a lot on the subject of Europe. She was basically pro in the 1970s, though never a wild enthusiast. And she became increasingly anti. And after she left office in 1990, she actually came to say privately that she thought we should leave the European Union. And that was her private view for the last 10 or more years of her life. She never said it publicly because she was advised not to. She wasn't in the best of health and the amount of controversy it would have provoked was considered so great that people said to her, her friends said to her, you know, you don't really want to get into this one. Actually, she did rather want to get into that one and uh, <laughs> had to be restrained. Um, I think it's significant that she never said we should leave when we she was prime minister. I hmm. think she wasn't so sure about it then and she realised how dangerous a thing it would have been to say in those days. But she did come to the firm private view that we should leave. Another, if we're, if we're continuing the narrative around similarities between uh, Lady Thatcher and Prime Minister May, another one that people might make is their relationship with US presidents. I suppose, of course, you know, most British Prime Ministers look for good relationships with US presidents. Um, but one thinks of uh, Lady Thatcher's relationship with Ronald Reagan. 
Theresa May has obviously been the first foreign leader to go to the White House, and there's this furore over a state visit for Donald Trump. I just wondered, I just wanted to get your perspective really on Theresa May's approach to Donald Trump and some of the furore uh, around him. Well, I think she made a mistake to start with, or, or at least the people around her and some of the senior officials made a mistake because they'd already sort of dumped on Trump really before anything much should happen and before he'd become president in some cases. And they really didn't know what to do because they, were, they had too much of an official mindset and they sort of thought he wouldn't win and so on. Uh, and that, that all got off to the wrong start. But I think when she got there um, and saw him, she handled it extremely well and because um, she kept her dignity. So she didn't sort of suck up to him and pretend to be a Trump-type person because they're completely opposite-type characters. But she did establish a friendly uh, and useful start, which was definitely very influential in the whole Brexit argument, I think. Mm. Um, the big difference with her and Trump compared with uh, Thatcher and Reagan is rather the same as the leadership point. Reagan and Thatcher were great friends because they were, became ideological soulmates and personal friends before either of them held office. In the mid-70s they met for the first time. And so they were sort of going on a long march together to get power and to change the world in the way they thought right, both in relation to economics and in relation to the Cold War. And so they saw it as a long shared partnership. Now, Theresa May might be able to establish that with Donald Trump, but she certainly has no background in that. Um, and uh, so in that sense, it's extremely different. Mm -hmm. I often think people over overlook the fact that they could be the leaders of their respective countries for quite a while, but that will be uh, something to keep an eye on, I suppose. Um, yes, well, it is, yeah. For first, final couple of minutes, uh, given that you are a journalist, um, there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, sort of talk to, talk around at the moment around fake news. This fake news word keeps getting thrown around. I just wondered how worried you think journalists should be about that. I guess there's always been this thing that you hear people say, which is, well, you can't you can't believe everything you read in the newspapers. I mean, do you think this fake news uh, label is an extension of that, or do you think it's something more worrying for journalists? Um, it is an extension of that, and there is more fake news around because there are more outlets. Um, and obviously, if you have tons of outlets, it's much harder for them all to be checked by anybody else or by their own staff. They're all in a terrible rush. Um, but I'm a little cherry of going on and on about this subject, um, though you do need to look out, particularly when it's infiltrated by state action like um, with Putin. Um, but you do need to be a little cherry of it, because I think some of this, I think Trump is right about some of this, which is that some of this is the cry of pain by the very established old-fashioned media organizations, particularly in Washington. And they greatly resent the idea that they're not allowed to dictate the world's news agenda and the United States' news agenda. And so they turn it into what they see as a great moral issue. But actually, they do need to be challenged, and inevitably by modern technology and the plurality of opinion, they are being challenged. And so, though I'm very worried about some of the trends, I don't want to join the hunt against the new boys and girls on the block. I think um, I think we are inevitably throwing news open to a much, much, much wider uh, number of participants. That has many dangers, but it would be quite wrong to try to prevent it. Yes, and we're not going back to the old world, of course. Um, not, no. Charles Moore, fascinating stuff. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Lovely. That was Charles Moore there. A big thank you to Charles for taking the time to share some of his perspectives 
on uh, Margaret Thatcher's legacy and how she compares to some of her successors. Particularly interesting there to note the different environment in which Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister um, compared to um, Theresa May when we think about the media landscape. I think that's certainly something that has been noted by her own staff when they refer to, you know, she doesn't live on Twitter and all the rest of it. It's uh, easy to forget that when Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister, there were only three TV uh, news channels and, of course, no internet and social media and things. So a very different environment in which she operated in. I also thought his perspective on the media landscape and how that's changing now was particularly relevant when we think about this sort of fake news phenomenon. It's certainly entirely plausible that the established media, if you like, uh, the Wall Street journals and the uh, Washington Post and so on, um, don't like the idea of being usurped. But at the same time, as the um, media landscape gets more and more disparate and more and more varied, there is this danger that uh, fake news, as it were, creeps into our public discourse. And when there is such little trust in politics and the media from voters already, that only has uh, that can only have negative consequences, I imagine, to what comes next. But a big thanks to Charles for joining me today. The next part of the podcast is my conversation with Philip Burton Cartledge. As I mentioned earlier, Philip is a lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby, but also a Labour activist. And I wanted to get his perspective on his experience campaigning in Stoke. What is the message on the doorstep? Are Labour going to hold the seat? And how does Labour re-engage with some of its working class heartlands where, by all accounts, they are starting to struggle, particularly in areas that voted overwhelmingly for leave? So here is that conversation between me and Phil. I started off by asking him a bit about Stoke and the history of the seat. So I'm here with Phil Burton Cartledge, lecturer in sociology at the University of Derby, also Labour activist and the blogger for All That Is Solid. Uh, Phil, welcome to Polling Matters. Hello there. Um, so I guess looking ahead to the by-election uh, on Thursday, Phil, it's probably worth us starting with a little bit of background on the seat. Now I must confess, all I all I really know about uh, Stoke politically is that it's been a you know it's been a Labour stronghold for a long time, and then there is this story about it being uh, voting Leave in large numbers. I mean, what, what do you think people need to bear in mind as they look ahead to Thursday? Um, Stoke-on-Trent is a place that has really not benefited from uh, the winds of globalisation at all. Uh, During the course of uh, the late 1980s and 1990s, most of the pop banks uprooted themselves and and exported jobs to the Far East, mainly uh, China and Indonesia. Uh, We also had the problem in the 1980s with the miners' strike, where a lot of the local mining community were out for the full year. And... Um, when, once, that my, once that strike was lost, then it was just a matter of time before the local pits were closed. And on top of that, the steel industry has taken a, a massive battering locally. Well, I say a massive battering, the whole steel plant has completely disappeared. So you've just had thousands of relatively well-paid, insecure, uh, sorry, well-paid, secure, manual working class jobs have just disappeared and nothing has come to replace them. We have uh, warehouses in Stoke now that pay uh, less than uh, the many of the towns and cities just down the road. You have, um, there's obviously a growth in retail, but again, that's not a like-for-like replacement of jobs. And as I said, those kinds of, the, the sorts of skilled jobs, these sort of jobs that you would associate with the knowledge economy, haven't filled out the economy in Stoke in the same way as it has in other places. And I suppose that leads uh, neatly on to 
um, the rise of sorts of UKIP. Obviously, uh, UKIP have the leader, Paul Nuttall, standing in this by-election. But also, of course, uh, not just related to UKIP, um, Stoke voted overwhelmingly to leave uh, in the EU referendum, didn't it? Yes, it did. And none of this is surprising for anyone who's been active in Stoke politics for any period of time. I mean, some of your listeners may recall that the British National Party once regarded Stoke-on-Trent as a, as a jewel in its crown. In 2009, there were nine BMP councillors locally, and they had performed very creditably in previous uh, local mayoral elections as well. Um, and part of the problem is that with the, the disappearance of Stoke's industrial base, that has kind of worked its way through into its politics. So if, when you've had working-class communities effectively dispersed to the four winds, you find that the politics gets dispersed to the four winds as well after a period of time. And that's exactly what has happened. So, it, so votes for the BMP during the course of uh, the noughties, uh, present-day the sorts of support that UKIP are attracting, the sorts of support the local city independent group is attracting, is a kind of a, is an anti-politics vote. Um, it is a kind of, it's a protest against this kind of feeling of powerlessness, this feeling of abandonment that a lot of people in Stoke feel. And then you, you've ob- you obviously uh, introduced you as a Labour activist. I think that's a fair, fair characterisation. Um, so you've been yeah. out on the uh, you've been out on the doorstep, um, campaigning for Labour in this by-election. I mean, h- how confident does your experience uh, of doing so leave you about Thursday? And what sort of issues are people mentioning on the doorstep? I mean, are they talking about Brexit? Are they talking about hospitals? Or are they talking about the party leaders? Well, uh, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to really talk about how confident I feel in, before Thursday because I felt variously confident before the uh, the EU referendum for Remain. I felt confident for Hillary Clinton before <laughs> the presidential elections. Um, so I'm, I'm ignoring the evidence for the moment. But the kinds of um, issues that we're encountering on the doors are. Yes, mainly NHS. That has been the, the big issue that I've come across on the door personally. Then it's a sort of the apathetic, you are all the same, what have you done for us kind of, kind of thing. Um, but generally speaking, yes, if people are voting Labour or considering voting Labour, it's NHS that is the number one issue. Uh, number, the number two issue um, I found on the doors personally is uh, obviously Brexit. But it tends to be people who voted Remain who raised it rather than people that voted Leave. Mm. So I think um, what what Remain voters do in this particular by-election is going to be very interesting. That is an interesting point because we know that the Liberal Democrats have come out and said that they obviously want to reverse the referendum result, that uh, Tim Farron very much wants to rebrand them as the Remain party of sorts. Um, with Labour's current positioning on Brexit... Do you find that there's um, confusion on Labour's position or do you think that people still assume Labour's kind of remain because that's the position they advocated at the time? No, I think people are very clear about where Labour stands locally because Labour has been extremely clear in its leaflets and in its hosting performances about where it stands. And that is that, you know, we'd rather that uh, the people had voted remain, but Nevertheless, the referendum has spoken, and therefore it's down to us to fight for the kind of Brexit that will protect workers' rights, that will protect the NHS, and ensure that we build an economy that serves the interests of working people. Mm. And do the party leaders come up at all? I mean, one of the things that people 
um, have talked about a great deal, particularly looking at the opinion polling, which is what we do on this show, mm-hmm. about Jeremy Corbyn's um, pretty negative uh, personal poll ratings, but also uh, talking about Paul Nuttall as well, who's had a, a very, shall we say, challenging uh, by-election <laughs> with uh, some of the things that have come up with uh, Hillsborough. I mean, do, do people mention the party leaders at all? Um, they haven't done... Re- I mean, I can only speak from my own experience. I've had No-one has raised party leaders with me on the door. Uh, and that was... Be, oh, sorry. I've had one woman who raised Paul Nuttall on the door with me, and she... I should say that she wasn't particularly impressed, and that was before all the Hillsborough stuff came out. But other people may have experienced uh, differently. The the kinds of the kind of general chatter amongst uh, Labour activists is that Jeremy doesn't seem to be coming up as an issue strongly on the doors. Uh, obviously, for obvious reasons, during the course of this last week, Paul Nuttall has come up more strongly as well. Mm. Um, but Theresa May has got nary a mention. Never mind Tim Farron and the rest. Let's talk about Gareth Snell, the candidate. I mean, he's had his own, he's had, he's had his own um, difficulties with past tweets resurfacing and things. But I, I didn't want to talk about that so much, unless you have a comment. But there was um, something of a sort of social media bubble issue, which I, I accept is probably not something that would ever come up on the doorsteps. But there has been some sort of left-wing activists uh, online that are. Um, annoyed at the, I think it was a leaflet or a booklet that Gareth produced, which had a, an image of the English flag on it. And there, there are some people that feel, I think somebody, um, I won't name them on the podcast, but somebody that I was interacting with referred to it as a symbol of hate. Um, and I'm sure that is not the position of the Labour Party mm-hmm. or the majority of people on the left. But it did strike me as quite um, telling of part of the problem, I guess, that the left does have when trying to interact with, shall we say, the traditional working class vote in, in areas like Stoke. I mean, what, what's, your, what's your take on some of that? Because Labour does have this, uh, this almost this conflicted dilemma with how much to use things like flags and this difficult relationship with patriotism, dare I say. I mean, personally, I don't have any problem with the Labour Party using either the George Cross or or the the Union flag. Um, but I can understand where some uh, left-wing elements of the party do have this issue. I mean, in Stoke, for example, we have, if you go to a number of the estates, um, oftentimes you'll come across houses that have uh, the Union Jack on a pole or you'll come across... Uh, the uh, George Cross on a pole as well. And previously, when the BMP were a big issue in Stoke, for activists both locally and from outside, it was originally, oh, these are bound to be BMP houses. But actually, you know, you'd go and knock on those doors and you'd find that these were actually Labour folk or people who weren't particularly interested in politics or voting very far from being fascists. So I think Part of it is it's a cultural thing on the left because we've become so inured to the fact that firstly the BMP and the far right and then the English Defence League had effectively appropriated these flags politically. And therefore, for a section of the left, it just denotes bigotry. I mean, you, you and your listeners will recall the kinds of trouble that Emily Thornberry got into when she uh, uh, tweeted that photo regarding uh, White Van Dan and his English flag. Uh, that he was uh, flying from from his house. Um, But, yeah, this is an issue that comes up time and again, and I do think that too many on the left do do kind of associate the flag with bigotry, or anyone who's flying the flag, um, denoting their bigoted views or whatever, and I think we need to effectively um, have another think about it, have a think about how ordinary 
uh, normal Labour voters perceive both the Union Jack and, and the George Cross and, um, and act accordingly. So it's obviously going to be, um, I, I mean, I, as an aside, I do agree with that. I think that, you know, um, it, it does feel quite unhelpful for uh, certain people on the left to be playing up to this narrative the Tories and uh, conser- uh, more Conservatives more generally do want to push, which is that Labour sort of isn't patriotic in some way, and um, this isn't particularly helpful. But at the same time, you, ra- you raise a good point that, you know, um, it's worth uh, taking into account why people feel this way as well. Um, but I'm sure that will be something that comes up time and time again. Looking um, looking ahead uh, beyond Thursday, obviously the result is going to be really important in, in, in sort of what comes next. Um, but I mean, wh- where do you see the future of the Labour Party? You're obviously a committed um, activist, obviously struggling to um, defend two Labour seats this week. It may very well hold them both. But there is a challenge overturning um, a, a pretty dire poll situation at the moment, isn't there? Um, ICM this week came out with the Conservatives 18 points ahead um, I think it was like the third or fourth worst Labour poll rating that they'd ever had in with ICM. Um, now, that may be a little bit high. It may be that they'll revert to the mean of you know, 13, 14 points next month. But it doesn't look good, does it? So what do you think Jeremy's got to do to turn it around? And, um, and what, what do you think are the issues Labour need to be focusing on to do that? I mean, it is, I mean the polls do not... Um they're certainly not good news, and I can understand why a lot of Labour people, whether they support Jeremy or not, look at them and just just despair. Um, what Jeremy Corbyn can do, to be honest, I, I don't, I do not know what the Labour leadership can do to turn it around. Um, my view is that because we live in a, a period of flux when it comes to politics, that. This kind of idea, we're in a kind of a, a brief, stable period at the moment in between uh, the end of the European Union referendum campaigning and before the start of Brexit negotiations. So, what happens with Brexit negotiations and also what happens with Donald Trump in the White House, which Theresa May has, in my view, rather unwisely associated herself rather too closely with, and also with what's going to be happening in the world's economy over the next few years, all of a sudden, everything that we know, these kind of polling figures that we're Mm. talking about, these could be thrown up into the air. So effectively, um, if... For, for Labour to do well, it needs a good crisis, I think. Um, and then I think people will look at what Jeremy Corbyn has to say afresh, because there are a number of very interesting and exciting policies uh, that, that Jeremy Corbyn has brought forward. I mean, one, speaking as a university lecturer, I'm probably bound to uh, be attracted to this, but the idea of lifelong learning, free lifelong learning, where uh, people can... Um, take breaks from work effectively Mm. and go into full-time education be it further education or higher education to retrain themselves to equip themselves with the kinds of skills that the economy is is demanding i think that's a very interesting policy and whether whether corbynism succeeds or not if if jeremy corbyn steps down whoever his successor is going to be they're going to have to face up to that challenge as well and i wouldn't be surprised if that's a policy that survives jeremy corbyn um but yeah in in the immediate term provide uh, for as long as politics stays in this kind of stable equilibrium i don't think uh, things are going to change much for labor but we'll just have to see 
And a, a final minute or so, I guess, um, we, that we've got you, Phil. I mean, let's finish off talking about Stoke again. So, I mean, one of the things we mentioned earlier was that um, apathy does seem to reign supreme in Stoke, doesn't it? I think it was possible. Was it the lowest turnout at the last general election? It was certainly uh, very low. Um, what do you think politicians can do, and I'll include the Labour Party in this, but just generally uh, as well, to try and get people from Stoke to turn out to the polls in greater numbers and maybe more widely in the country deal with um, this apathy that is clearly there? Well, firstly, I think we've got to start thinking about non-participation in elections as not necessarily being an issue of apathy, because a lot of people don't turn out to elections for what they consider good political reasons. The fact that when you knock on someone's door and if they say you're all the same, then obviously there is something that has happened to them in, in relation to their relationship to politics that has made them think that. It's often not the case that you knock on someone's door and if they say you're all the same, it's they have actually participated in politics at some point in the past. So I always make a point of asking why. Mm. And I think that's what every every activists, be they Labour, be they Conservative, be they from any other party, when they go door knocking, they meet people who say they're not voting. It's always worth asking, asking why that is the case. So I think politics generally has to do more listening to people. But also I think pol- politics generally has to pay very close attention to the kinds of communities that they represent. We have a situation where particularly during the uh, the new Labour years, where politics was perceived as something that was cut adrift or afloat from everyday normal folk. And that has kind of fed into this feeling that politics is something that is done to people rather than something that people participate in themselves. So if parties are serious about wanting to increase the participation of wider layers of of, uh, of people and this is again this is where I think Jeremy Corbyn has been particularly effective you just have to look at the the uh, numbers that he's attracted to the Labour Party but you have to start thinking about how can we as political activists as party members start relating to our communities start listening to our communities and show that we are listening and delivering for for those communities is it just enough to put out a quarterly leaflet that says we've cleaned up all the dog poo down the back your back alley or um, you know litter from the streets have all gone because council such and such has managed to get more road sweepers down there i think we've got to start thinking slightly differently about how we engage with wider uh, wider layers of people Mm-hmm. Certainly a, a challenge, not just for the Labour Party, but for politics in general, uh, in the That's Western right. world even. Um, Phil Burton-Cartledge, thank you very much for your time. That's right, thank you. That was Phil Burton-Cartledge there. A big thanks to Phil for taking the time out of campaigning to uh, let us know what was going on in Stoke, but also to give us a bit of background to the seat as well. I thought his comments on sort of voter apathy or non-participation were particularly important. Whatever side of the political debate you're on, I think we can all agree that Um, low turnout in various areas of the country is never a good thing. I do wonder what we can do about it. Um, Phil mentioned about politicians listening and demonstrating that they're delivering for local people and that's obviously very very important but I just wonder in this cynical sort of media environment that we're in um, where faith in politics is very low how likely some things as intangible as that are going to lead to uh, a significant uptick in voter participation certainly in Stoke but obviously elsewhere in the country. I suppose there are nuclear options, pardon the pun, at Copeland, um, that you could take around uh, changing the electoral system. 
or making uh, voter participation mandatory, you know, like we do in Australia. I'm not necessarily in favour of either of those things. I guess they are things to consider on the electoral system. There is a logic, there is an argument that says, well, if votes are fairer, as it were, uh, in terms of proportional representation, maybe people will be more likely to turn out. It's hard to say, though. I think in, unless you are forced to go to the polls, there's always going to be people that are just disengaged for one reason or another. But it isn't a good thing, and I think we could all kind of agree with that. But in terms of the, the by-elections themselves, uh, both Stoke and Copeland, it does feel like a, a very difficult set of by-elections to call, partly because there isn't really any polling out there for us to sort of hang our hat on. My instinct in the absence of any data suggesting otherwise is that Labour will hold both seats, but I'm basing that off a hunch rather than any concrete information. I do just wonder in Stoke whether there's a whiff of the olden by-election last year about it, where we all thought that you know, Labour would struggle, there's lots of vox pops in the news with Labour voters that were disenchanted or people that weren't showing up and so on, and we thought UKIP might do well, and yet Labour held the seat uh, pretty comfortably. Now, there's a, lot of, there's a lot more different dynamics this time of the leader of UKIP running, Paul Nuttall, um, with the Brexit vote last time, maybe the Liberal Democrats will take some Remain votes away from Labour. Even the Conservatives might feel they can do well too. But I just have this hunch that when it comes to it, Labour will hold Stoke reasonably comfortably. Famous last words. Copeland is obviously different. There are very clear reasons why um, people would vote against Labour, if you like, there, because of sort of nuclear energy and weapons. I'm not so sure, though, there either. I just have this hunch that at this point in time, when this election is taking place, that um, the NHS, frankly, rather than nuclear, is going to be what drives people to the polls. Again, that get-out-of-the-vote um, effort from Labour is going to be really, really important. But I'm not going to put a gun to my head on Copeland. It would be astonishing, though, if the Tories do win. And it's worth bearing in mind that, what is it, 1982, the last time uh, a governing party took a seat at the by-election? And bear in mind, there were some very, very specific circumstances around that too. It really would be uh, unprecedented in the last few decades if, if, if Labour was to lose Copeland. I'm going to stick my neck out and say I think Labour will hold both, but I have no degree of certainty about that. Now, you're probably wondering where the latest Polling Matters opinion poll is. It's not going to be released on this podcast, but there is one where we've asked about whether each of the main party leaders is the right leader or the wrong leader to lead their party into the next general election. That is going to be coming tomorrow uh, on the evening of the by-election. We thought that might be the best time to publish it. But also, we're running some additional data analysis where we're going to be cross-breaking um, people that would definitely vote Labour or consider voting Labour or not vote Labour at all uh, versus uh, their support for Jeremy Corbyn. One of the things I'm cu curious about is whether there is a difference between the sort of die-hard committed Labour vote and maybe the softer Labour vote. Or maybe there's no difference at all, but we'll be seeing that tomorrow. So look out for that on social media for those of you that are on Twitter and Facebook. But that's all for this week's episode of the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. A big thanks to my guests today, Charles Moore and Phil Burton-Cartledge. It is great to have different voices on here, giving their expert opinion on what's going on. If you like what you hear, as ever, do share the podcast, particularly on social media. You wouldn't believe how many people still come to the show and send me messages and emails saying they've just come across the show and they like it and that sort of thing. So believe it or not, even if there's only sort of half a dozen people uh, see what you're sharing, 
it can make a difference. It can can get a new listener. So that's really really important. But do also uh, subscribe on iTunes and other Android apps if you uh, have these podcast apps on your smartphone. Even leave us a rating or a comment. That really does help get our uh, grow our audience. And like the Facebook page, uh, polling matters too. Anything you can do to get our name out there and to uh, share the show is really very much appreciated. But next week we'll be back again, um, likely looking at the fallout from uh, from this Thursday's set of by-elections. I suspect we'll be talking about Labour. I suspect we might be talking about UKIP as well. But we're also going to be trying to get a guest on to talk about France because I'm conscious that I haven't really spoken about that yet. And uh, that, that contest does gather pace. But that's all we've got time for this week. And thanks as ever for listening.